gentlemen, and welcome to the That's What She Said podcast. My name is Alexa Dat. I will be your host. We are in the Midtown Studios in our Midtown Manhattan recording studio. I'm here with producer Kyle, and today we are joined by Doug Williams. Hi, Doug. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Kyle. How Hi, are Doug. you both doing? I'm okay. Here in our Midtown Studios. In our Midtown Studios. Doug works for SNY, and he is climbing the ranks at SNY. And we want to get to that, and we want to get to your life and how you got to where you are now. But we do want to start the podcast to talk a little bit about Muhammad Ali and the passing of Muhammad Ali. And I want to start, and then we'll get your guys' reaction about how you felt about the situation. So I've met a lot of awesome people in my life, never got the chance to meet Muhammad Ali, but when I was at the 2007 Orange Bowl in Miami, when Wake Forest played Louisville, my dad went to Wake Forest, and we went down there, and I went with my brother and my dad, and it was both Arnold Palmer, who went to Wake, and Muhammad Ali, who is a Louisville native, They were chosen as the honorary team captains. And my dad's a huge Arnold Palmer fan. And when Arnold Palmer came out, the crowd went crazy and people were really into it. And then, and he walked out and Muhammad Ali came out on a golf cart. And as soon as he came out, nobody was really sure exactly who it was because it was kind of hard to see the golf cart, you know, was making its way around the center of the field. And then when he stood up and shadow boxed, The place lost its mind. I mean, the place freaked out. I've never seen anything like it since then and up till that point. And it just made me realize that. And I turned to my dad and I said, Dad, who is that? Because I had no idea. And my dad said, that's Muhammad Ali. That's the greatest of all time. And I've never heard my dad reference Muhammad Ali before that. It, and it just kind of washed over him this effect that there was a legend standing on the field before him, someone that he'd never seen in person. And for the first time, he had this expression on his face that I'd never seen that was, I mean, he was mesmerized. And so was everyone else in the audience. And it was pretty cool. I mean, that was, that was my only interaction with him in a live sort of situation. But I could feel it. And to this day, I remember that feeling of how everyone reacted when he came out. Yeah, I, Muhammad Ali, obviously, for me personally, I'm young and I'm not a boxing fan. So that kind of takes me away from from knowing a lot of the greatness of Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in Atlanta in 96 for the Olympics. That was my one experience where, I mean, that was just incredible. I was incredibly young, though, so I wasn't able to truly experience it. But I think what's interesting is sometimes when people die, it gives you a... a good opportunity as, as weird as that sounds to know more and learn more about somebody and in this case in just a few days time in about 48 hours i think i've learned more about muhammad ali than i had I'd learned for my whole life and i think his death has really signified this interesting divide between young people and and people who are our parents age who lived through his greatness and know why he's the greatest I think for such a stat-driven generation that we're in, it's like, why is he the greatest? How many wins did he have? You know, like, That's but a good point. he was yeah. he was greatest. He was the greatest for almost other reasons. It was it was outside of the ring. It was obviously he was the greatest boxer of all time, but it was more than that. So, I think there's some interesting interesting dynamics to his death and one of them has been younger people a younger generation learning what made this guy so great and he's not just the the guy on the on the college dorm posters anymore you're learning more about what made Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali I've found the coverage to be fascinating that's really interesting because the same thing happens with Bowie and Prince when they pass away a whole new generation is introduced to their music and they learn their greatness all over again. And it's unbelievable to think that there is a generation out there that doesn't know Muhammad Ali. But of course, that's the case. And getting these people educated after he passes is such a bizarre phenomenon. But yeah, like you said, that's exactly what, what it is. And keep in mind that the really sad thing is that Parkinson's took away so many years of his life and his ability to communicate. So he would have been such an interesting guy to hear from. For the last 15, 20 years, but he hasn't had the ability to do that. I mean, how interesting would it have been to to have gotten Muhammad Ali's takes on things in sports and and life and uh, the presidency of Barack Obama and and this election? I mean, he would have been fascinating in in every uh, circumstance. So, you know, he had lost his ability to be Muhammad Ali. And and that was, uh, you know, our last glimpses of it were in Atlanta. And even then he was really struggling. So... You know, it's been an interesting time, and it would have been an even more interesting time had we had Muhammad Ali fully healthy for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I had a, I have a unique sort of take on Muhammad Ali in that I grew up such a history nerd. Like, I don't know why, but at a young age, history just really, like, I gravitated towards it. And as far as idols go, it was him and Neil Armstrong, which I have to admit that I've lied on this podcast in the past when I said I didn't idolize sports stars. Like, I just don't. I didn't idolize Muhammad Ali because of his sports accolades. Uh, him in history, like, the things that he did, the way he you know, changed his life before the draft to sort of say, I don't believe in this. This is against my code, my religion, my belief system, and I will not partake, and you will punish me however you punish me, uh, but I'm not running away. I'm going to stand here and take it by, you know, standing up for what I believe in. And my grandfather, huge boxing fan. He was a gold gloves boxer when he was a kid. He also was a veteran. And he didn't hold Muhammad Ali's choices against him in any capacity, as some other veterans may have. Um, he watched him fight at MSG, and he, he, he couldn't stop talking about how great he was. And I had asked him when I started really getting into the history of Muhammad Ali when I was young, um, you know, what, what was it like when he sort of made that decision? He said, I don't hold it against anyone who doesn't have their heart in it to go to war. I've been there. You know, uh, I don't. I don't fault them for saying that I don't believe in this, especially when him, you know, he was, he converted to Islam before the war. Like this was his belief system. So he didn't, my grandfather had the unique viewpoint where he didn't fault him for that decision. He didn't hold it against him. He still respected him for the man he was. And the fact that he stood there and said, you know, I haven't left the country. I'm staying here. You will punish me, but I'm not like, I'm not running away. Like I've made my decision and I'm going to own up to whatever consequences may come from it. And those consequences were losing three of the best years that he could have had as a professional fighter, but it's what he believed in. So he took it, right. you know, he appealed the whole process. He didn't go to jail. I think luckily for him, but he still lost out on the thing that he loved the most, which was being in the ring. Right. That wasn't a coward's way out. It was a sacrifice. Right. As you said, the three years that he missed, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time in the ring for him. And, you know, it, you think avoiding the draft, you think, oh, I'm sure it's the coward running away. But in his case, he was standing up for what he believed in. Yeah, and my grandfather made sure to let me know that, you know, he was a conscientious objector. He wasn't a draft dodger. He never viewed him in that way as so many others did. He said he has a moral obligation to say, I'm not, I don't believe in this and my heart's not in it. I would be at a disservice to go fight in this war because I cannot commit to it. I don't see this as a right thing to do, and it just so happened to turn out that the course of public opinion began to agree with Muhammad Ali as that war went on. Uh, I grew up loving him as like the face of counterculture. I remember writing so many reports whenever I could. I eventually have to stop writing reports on Muhammad Ali and switch to other people, but throughout my entire you know, junior high school and high school experience, I found him such a fascinating figure from just never watching him box, but where he stood in history and what he means to civil rights and for people who speak and go against the grain. He was such a huge personality. Plus him in the ring, you know, seeing old clips, just the way, like the swagger he had about him oh, yeah. made him a brilliant personality in just about everything he did. So uh, I, was, I was a little bit sad on Friday when it all went down. You know, that was, it's, I don't like to get crazy with celebrity deaths as other people do, but I did. that one hurt a little bit. Well, Doug, I thought this was a good transition into your family because I watched your dad's coverage all weekend of Muhammad Ali. And for those of you that don't know, Doug's father is Brian Williams, the legendary news anchor you've been watching your entire lives. So I thought this was a good example. I learned a lot from Muhammad Ali from watching your dad on TV this weekend. Did you also learn a lot from Muhammad Ali from watching your dad yeah. on TV this weekend. Yes. Yeah, I knew he was um he was there Friday night yeah. and they had Mike Lupica with him in studio and um they had a lot of really interesting guests come on. Um and I, I it was interesting. It was a conversation. It was people, like I said, of a different generation talking about somebody who was a hero to them. And I could sit there and, and, and learn, you know, and I if I could say so, I thought the coverage was great as well, Alexa. And um it just was really fascinating. And, you know, Evander Holyfield comes on and, and, you know, my dad's talking, doing a phoner with Evander Holyfield talking about the legacy of Muhammad Ali. And, you know, it was really cool. It was yeah. a very cool experience. Yeah, it was a it was a great weekend of coverage. And, you know, I think top to bottom, like you said, the guests were, were really fun. And it was really, it was cool to watch. So let's transition into your dad, because I want to ask you growing up what it was like to have a famous dad, because just from the little time that I've been married to Peter and having a famous husband, 
it's been a whirlwind. Like, it's been really crazy. And Peter's not even, I mean, he's, he's well known and he's climbing the ranks. But, you know, your dad's been a staple for a really long time. So growing up, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, what's interesting is that I would say, number one, he, he's my dad. So I think from the outside, it's easy to see what was it like having Brian Williams as a father. For me, it was just, that's my dad. And he's, as a profession, he's a newscaster. Right. So to me, it wasn't all that odd. Did he do different things than my friend's dad's growing up? Yes. Uh, he took longer trips. He went to dangerous places. But, you know, generally, uh, my dad is my best friend. So... I don't, I really don't view him. I think if we weren't as close, his profession would be a bigger part of my life because I would, you know, I don't know, I would look at it as the biggest thing about him. But to me, the biggest thing about him is our friendship. And, you know, we, we genuinely just hang out. We watch sports. We, we just talk. And um, I think that's what's been interesting is I, people ask me, you know, does he critique your work? You know, stuff like that. Like as if I get off the show and he's like, in the C block last night, you should have done... <laughs> You should not have done that uh, VO and like, that shut up, board. Dad. Yeah, like come on, Dad. Like, but no, it's not like that at all. Instead, it's you know, I get off the air and he's like, "Wow, Syndergaard had it working tonight." Yeah, like and, he's a big sports fan. Yes. Yeah, and you know, he watches so much of what I do, which is so nice. I mean, it, it's a it's a good feeling to get off the air at one thirty in the morning and, and get a text like that was a great show. This part was great. Loved it. That was fun. Um, you know, if I make a weird call and a highlight, like I say something out of the ordinary, you know, he will text me about it. It's a good feeling. And yeah. to be honest, it's it's been a lifetime of a great relationship. And I always said, you know, I made a speech at my high school graduation and I said I was introducing him because he spoke as well. And I said, you know, people ask me, you know, um, are you close to your dad with his job and how much you know time he spends working? And I try not to laugh because it's it's just so the opposite. It's never, and he deserves all the credit in the world because throughout my life, he has never let his hours or his trips or his, you know, the things that he has to do, his responsibilities, never let that impede his ability to be a parent. And shout out to my parents, by the way, it's their 30th anniversary today. Wow. So congratulations. congratulations. Yeah. That's amazing. 30 years. Wow. Yeah. That's a strong marriage. When... Your dad goes on all these awesome experiences and adventures. You casually mentioned that you were at the 96 Olympics yeah, like in no Atlanta. Yeah, no, no big deal. deal. I was just there. It was cool. Well, Muhammad keep Ali, in mind know. how old I am, which I guess I've been outed in the in the recent Newsday article. I'm 25 years old. I try and shy away from it just because I don't... Age is just a number. I think... <laughs> I, I, but... Um, I, Keith, so you can do the math. In 96, I was not quite old enough to really know what I was doing. Right. So, but through any of the cool experiences in your life, did you have any that stood out to you that you were like that you got to do with your parents because of who they are? You know what's interesting is uh, I have were done you a baby so many for cool all of things. Them? No, like- <laughs> no. Uh, two years ago uh, today, actually, I was in Normandy, France, for the anniversary of D Day. I believe it was the seventieth anniversary. Wow! Um, and that was really, really special. And I, I've been able to travel sometimes. I mean, a lot of the things that my parents have done, my dad has done, you know, he's been doing for work, so I haven't gone with him. But, you know, one interesting thing, and it's an interesting story, actually, to give you a little bit of background about me, um, for the probably 90% of the viewers that are listening that have no idea who I am. Um, <laughs> None actually, of them know who I am either, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I grew up a huge NASCAR fan, because my dad was always a big NASCAR fan. Uh-huh. And um, in Connecticut, where I grew up, that was a very rare thing to be a NASCAR fan. Uh, and my dad and I, I believe it was Talladega, um, we went down... Uh, and we were in the pits uh, before the race. And I was just a huge Dale Earnhardt fan. Huge. And, you know, we have press passes. You asked if I've been able to do cool things because of my dad. Obviously, we were down there because he he got us press passes and we were down there. And um, I went up to Dale Earnhardt and met him. And I was so thrilled. Um, I want to say it was 98. I could be wrong. Um, so thrilled to meet him. It was so cool. He was such a nice guy. And he said, hey, you know, um, if you want to, come touch my car for good luck. Wow. So I went over and I, I put my tiny hand on his car. <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you what, Doug. If, uh, if I win this race, come down to victory lane. You could celebrate. Because, you know, you're my good luck charm. So we go up. We were in a box. And Dale wins the race. Oh, my God. And somehow the way I remember it, I was young. But the way I remember it is that my dad and I just talked down the track. Uh-huh. So like security guards, we had passes. We said, I promise you we're not crazy. <laughs> Dale told us 
to come down and, and come oh, to yeah, Victory Lane. Oh, yeah, that doesn't Lane. sound crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a picture uh, down the Jersey Shore, huge framed photo of me with his trophy next to him and his entire team with my dad with his trophy after winning the race. It wow. was, so that, that's in terms of, you know, really special experiences that, uh, that I had with my dad, that's, that's up there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And that's probably for, for you as being such a huge sports fan, the pinnacle of what you could, you know, experience because it was along with your dad, who's your best friend. Right. And you're such a huge NASCAR fan. So it's like, a, and you literally were in the whole victory celebration, yeah, the whole it, mosh pit of it, it all. It was wild. And holding his trophy, which I remember being like 50 pounds. And, um, you know, it's it's more special, obviously, because Dale passed. And to have that experience with him, you know, I'm not nearly as big of a NASCAR fan now as I was, because I was really just a Dale Earnhardt fan. How it's, did you get into NASCAR? My dad was into it. So we, we went to, when I was younger, we used to go to short tracks, um, all around Connecticut and New Jersey. I love short track racing. It's a little bit like minor league baseball. It's just a good like Friday or Saturday night. And uh-huh. my dad would bring me and I just got addicted to it. And, um, and now, you know, the thing about NASCAR is it's, it, it seems so boring when you watch it and you don't have a driver, but if you really fall in love with a driver, you're only watching one car go around and it simplifies everything. So I always tell people, if you learn to like somebody, if you pay attention to NASCAR, you learn to like a driver I think that's when your fandom will start. Well, I think that's the same thing with golf to me, too. If you fall in love with a golfer, you understand their background. If you've watched them in several tournaments, you can fall in love with golf. You don't necessarily have to watch every golfer and, and love right. every golfer. But if you have, you know, if you have a horse in the race, I think that'll be a, a driving factor for you for sure. No pun intended. So both your parents are in the TV biz. Did you always want to be in the TV biz? Did When did you decide, you know, this is for me? Did you ever, were you ever like a, a defector at any point? No. Um, you know, what's interesting is I never really said I want to be on TV. Uh-huh. That never, it never occurred to me. But I think there is through the years of being around the business. My mom was a producer. That's how my dad and my mom met. Um, from the years of being around the business, y- you get a little acclimated to it. And so once you get into it yourself, it becomes less of a jarring thing. Mm-hmm. And my first job, I did a little bit of web stuff. I did a little bit of everything, which was great. And I recommend that for any first job, just do a little bit of anything. So I wrote, I did podcasts, I did on-camera stuff for the web. I did a whole lot of different things and allowed me to be like, well, I would like this. I like this thing. I, I don't like doing this. And Welcome to my life now, <laughs> doing like 50 different <laughs> yeah, jobs, but it's no, what you should do yeah, in order to 100%, get... Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that when I was in college, I did a lot of TV stuff and I, I had slowly fallen in love with it. But what I'm saying is there was never that moment. A lot of people say I knew as soon as I, you know, you know, watched Howard Cassell or as soon as I, you know, watched my first Monday Night Football game that I wanted to be in the booth or something like that. It never was that... It never was that black and white, uh-huh. but I think slowly through time, I realized that this is this is what I want to do. Besides NASCAR, what what else were you a fan of sports-wise growing up? I'm a huge baseball fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, baseball is number one. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing is because I didn't realize this, but I think there are, they are running out of young broadcasters that love baseball. I think. Which is crazy. Yeah. It really but is. But I, I think young people in general, they're running out of young baseball fans. I yeah. mean. Uh, when I grew up playing baseball, it was just a fun sport and it was a, it was what I loved. I think now kids are more attracted to lacrosse and the NBA is such a star-driven sport. Kids are buying, you know, Kevin Durant and LeBron James jerseys when they're young and the NFL is the NFL. So yeah. baseball kind of gets lost and it's a little slow and I understand that. But yeah, baseball was number one for me. I played it my whole life up until college. So that was part of it. But yeah, baseball's number one. And you're a Yankees fan. I grew up a Yankees fan. Okay. Um, and again, this this does bear repeating, but it's I I think fans need to realize something, which is it becomes work. Yeah. So you're not you're it's no fault of your own where you grow up. You're if you're listening to this and you have a favorite beat writer who for a certain team, chances are they grew up halfway across the country from the team they're covering, mm-hmm. and they grew up rooting for somebody else. It doesn't mean that they hate your team. So, you know, that's what I think. I, I think at a certain point it, it comes it comes with the territory that once you start covering a team, it's work. So right. I was at yes for a year and a half and it doesn't become 
giddy every day because you get to cover your favorite team. Right. It's it's right. it's more. This is work. I have to go to Yankee Stadium today and cover the Yankees totally uh, objectively. Yeah. And now that I'm at SNY, it's it has not been a problem at all. Yeah. In my well, opinion. Well, and it also probably is fun for you too because you get to cover the Mets so intensively and. It's still covering baseball, and you're still talking about one of the most exciting teams in the game right now, and you also still get to cover the team that you grew up rooting for. And I think I would tell anybody who's, who's hoping to get into sports broadcasting that there is an interesting effect that it has on you, which is if you grow up a huge sports fan like I did, the teams that you love, you would die for. That eventually goes away, and it in some ways is a little bit sad. It's a little bit sad because... That kind of crazy fandom that you have, it was a huge part of my life. And now I don't really have it anymore because it's work and it's terrific work. And I love working in sports. It's a dream, but it, it changes. It goes from this escape that you have from your normal life, whether you're in college or high school, you escape your schoolwork to watch the, the baseball or the, the hockey game. Now it's life. You're escaping with other things. You're, you, you know, sports is is work. You escape with going on vacation or you know reading a book or watching Bloodline on Netflix in an entire day. <laughs> Bloodline um, is so good. I haven't so gotten into it yet. Sorry. You oh, you escape in other good. ways. It's just interesting. It changes. You, you use it in, in a different way once you get into sports broadcast. Do you use other sports that you've ne- you weren't into growing up as an escape? To, to still use sports as an escape? Yeah, it's interesting. I went through years of not being a huge hockey fan, mm-hmm. and I am now just a huge hockey fan yeah. because I cover it less intensely than baseball yeah. or football or basketball. So hockey is kind of an escape. In a lot of ways, it's work. Like I covered the Islanders and Rangers last year in the playoffs. Like In some ways, it's work, but it's it's a nice little escape because I'm not covering it all the time. Boxing to me has been that escape. Yeah, I you love need it. boxing. I love UFC and the MMA stuff. I've really gotten into over the last ten years since I've been, you know, covering sports. And because I haven't covered boxing, it you know, it really was my escape. The downside was when I went to go cover it, although I still felt like uh, both a huge fan and a journalism, you know, professional at the same time, because it was my only time covering them. So it's not like it was a routine thing. Um, but yeah, boxing's kind of been my escape. You mentioned Bloodline. Let's talk about Bloodline because I'm obsessed. Have you seen season two yet? I have one episode left. I'm okay. waiting for the finale. I'm waiting until like I have a dark moment to watch it. I okay. like. I thought about watching it during the day the other day. I was like, oh, that's that idea is just disgusting. It's but such I, a dark show. You don't I have, don't like, blinds. Does it like black no, out I, the room? I have blinds, but like then you go outside and it's bright. You should only watch Bloodline in like the middle of the night. I think it's actually the opposite. I like the fact that you can watch it during the day and then open up your blinds and you're like, no, life exists. It still no, continues that, I, and goes on. I see on that point of view. It, I see that point of it, view. It drags you out of your depression, I think. So for those that don't know, Bloodline is a show on Netflix and it's about a family that's really effed up that lives <laughs> in the Keys and it's about you know betrayal and death and destruction and basically secrets in a family. Yeah. And it's amazing. So my favorite actor on the show is Ben Mendelsohn. Do you love Ben Mendelsohn? Yes. He's he, Danny Rayburn. Yes. He was unbelievable in season one. I think he's the best actor on TV right now. No offense to your sister. No, I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's totally fine. Ben Mendelsohn was unbelievable in season one. And it's interesting going into season two. I'm sure everyone who's watched Bloodline had the same concern. Yeah. How are they going to do a show without Danny? Yeah. And the intrigue that he brings. And I won't give anything away, but... While being dead, he is so much alive. Right. Well, yes, and you can read into that. And also, we saw his son at the end of season one. Right. And his son plays a really strong role in season two. Who is just a miniature Danny. He literally, yeah, he's the exact same version of him. So that's been really fun to watch. And watching the scenarios unfold with the Rayburn's kids and Danny's kid is really interesting, too, that dynamic. Anyway, Bloodline, what else are you a fan of? What kind of so shows do you watch? much. Yeah. Uh, I know The Office. I know you love The Office. Yeah, I'm The Office is, is one of my favorites of all time. I watch it every night before I go to bed. Yeah, me too. It turns the brain off in like the perfect right way. Yeah. Um, I just came off a winter of Thrones. Like okay. people say winter is coming in, in Thrones. For me, it was just the entire winter was binging. 
So I did the entire series, and I'm now caught up. Wow. Oh, my God. Yes. No, that's impressive. Mildly <laughs> pathetic. No, no, it's great. No, that's amazing. But I'm caught up. Welcome but to the like rest of us. But it's like what everyone's dream is, is to catch up, everyone, and you did it. Yeah, everyone that I would talk to would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm season three of Game of Thrones. I'm binging. They'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so jealous. <laughs> like yeah. You have so much fun ahead of you, which is, which was, it was great. Yeah. And what's your favorite storyline right now? Uh, I'm intrigued by Arya. Okay. Um, because I just feel like she's such a, a bamf. And yeah. I, I know that at the end of the day, she's going to make someone's day hell and she's going to get what she wants. She's not a character that I, I worry about, you know? Yeah. That's Except just my opinion. The last episode, which you oh, get a, she'll l- be get a little worried. <laughs> she I she mean, will be fine. We say that, but anytime I'm like, oh, he'll be fine. Uh, Red Wedding happens. Here's, well, let right. me say this. So. Here's the thing about Game of Thrones. At a certain point, you have to realize that no one dies. Everyone dies. It seems like that. The show wants you to think that everyone dies, but everyone's just kind of alive at the same time. As long as Tyrion has lines throughout the entirety of the series, yeah, I'll be great. okay. But think about and it. And no we, one kills off Jon Snow for the second time. We've had two people. Well, he could keep coming back. I mean. You know. I don't think so. We've had two people in this season who we were convinced were dead who are alive now. Oh, right. that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I forgot So about here's the, the thing. Unless you see someone die. Right. Unless you can literally, as a fan, you have to touch their pulse, make sure it's not (laughs) happening. And then otherwise, like Stannis, I think, you didn't see him die. But we saw Jon Snow die. We saw him dead. That's true. That's the one outlier. But like, why couldn't you watch Stannis die? They didn't let you see the sword. We've been told that he's missing a head. Oh, I don't care. I wow. don't care what we've been told. The headless Stannis Rathian. Yeah. No, I'd like back. to see him just riding on a horse holding his head off to the side. Yeah, we did hear that he was headless. That's right. That's yeah. a good point. I loved the uh, stone man wrist. I was really into that little storyline with what's his name again? Right. Jorah? Yeah. The He's stone being man sent wrist, away to go cure forearm. himself. Yeah, good it was, luck with I that. I loved that for a while. I just genuinely think that Thrones in some ways is so funny just because life is always terrible. I just I, I love the way people get into Game of Thrones, like the first season, knowing nothing about it. Like, oh, it's like kind of like a it mirrors our own political things, and then there's like the end of it. Dragons. They're like, all right, what? By the way, dragons are real, but you I stay mean, with it. Yeah, no, you have to because you've already invested yeah. ten hours of your life, and you're intrigued with all these characters. A main character just died. Like, you have to stay with it. But I love people like Jonas at SNY was just like, yeah, I'm not into you know all of that medieval stuff, and everyone's like, just watch it, just watch it. It's similar to all this, and he goes. Dragons appeared. I hate it, but I can't stop watching it. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing that HBO did with vampires, right? Everyone hated vampires, right. but True Blood was so good because they do such a great job with character development. You just have to watch it. Did you watch True Blood at all? Were you no? A fan? No. Yeah. Well, but you missed that was, out. That was a Sorry, guilty pre- that was a guilty pleasure. <laughs> I watched so many other shows. True Blood never made it. What else are you watching? Uh, as soon as I'm done with Bloodline, I'll get into Peaky Blinders season three. Okay. Um, I missed that one. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- I, I watched uh, Mad Men, uh, Boardwalk Empire. Um, Are you doing vinyl? I'm done with vinyl season one. Yeah. yeah. I did that. Uh, I liked it. I didn't love it. Yeah. I liked it. I agree. Um, I just, I, I'm a big music guy and I love TV shows that take place in a different era. So yeah. it was, it was right on my alley. Yeah. Any storylines in sports that intrigue you as much as these shows? Because I think that's what a lot of these sports, you know, figures and, and teams are trying to do is mimic what we're seeing in in you know our our Netflix shows that's why wrestling is now started to become mainstream and why they're covering it on ESPN because these storylines that grab people are super intriguing is there anything in the sports world that you feel like grabs you the same way I would say probably my favorite conversation since I started working at SNY was the conversation we had during baseball night in New York this offseason about the day that the Bryce Harper stuff came out with um him wanting to make baseball fun again mm-hmm. that quote yeah and then um the quotes from Goose Gossage that were the, just the polar opposite, calling Jose Batista like a clown for <laughs> tossing the bat. That parallel to me is the most interesting thing about sports right now, in, in, in baseball especially, because it's this game is going to need to change to, to gain any popularity in the next 10 to 20 years. So the Bryce Harpers are going to need to win. Mm-hmm. The problem is that there are going to be Goose Gossage type people in the game for a long time. They're in the dugout. Or they're still playing. I mean, there's. If you look even at Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, that is a fundamental difference. The two best players, but you could argue in baseball, mm-hmm. one will never bat flip. One will give fairly boring post game interviews. The other will do whatever he wants. Is purely entertaining enough to put you in the seats 
and post game will be an interesting interview. Yeah. I prefer one over the other. Mm-hmm. And I think baseball should prefer one or the other in terms of its its future and its popularity. So if you put your, you know, GM hat on or your Joe Torre hat on, what what does baseball do to make it fun again? Um, I think it's moving in the right direction in terms of uh, pace of play. I think that it just it can't shy away from personalities. And we have this archaic view of the way a baseball player should be. He plays the game the right way. He's a baseball player. Those things need to get away from our ethos and, and, and the way that we think about baseball. I think we should embrace Yasiel Puig doing a stupid thing, trying to make a great play. We should embrace him going for a double when he has absolutely no chance of getting into second base. You know, it's just, I enjoy that stuff. I think that that's what baseball needs. And the thing is, too, if you're going to have appointment viewing, that's such an important part of the NFL, like mm-hmm. on Sunday Night Football when it's Bengals or Bengals-Steelers, you know, obviously a huge rivalry, but I don't have anything in that game. Right. But you go to watch certain players play. Antonio Brown, let's see if Andy Dalton screws this up again. <laughs> you know, in baseball, you rarely have that. Starting pitching is really important because they're there for five or six innings, usually minimum. Yeah. So. You can have appointment viewing to watch Kershaw or Arietta. But it's really important that position players are interesting too. Because I like watching the Nationals sometimes purely to see what Bryce Harper does. That's really important. But do you think it's important to keep the older generation still around and invested by keeping it slightly archaic and then also having this dynamic where it is the Goose Gossage versus the Bryce Harper to introduce the younger generation without pushing the older generation out so quickly because you can't just get rid of them as fans well, and you need their money. The thing is that I don't think we're talking about just getting rid of an older generation. I think there will always be those type of players. Mike Trout is in his 20s. He's just a certain way. There's always going to be two different types of players in baseball, I think. But I'm just saying that I root for the game to become more interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the Rugnet Odor and Jose Batista thing was fascinating. And you wake up the next morning... And people are talking about baseball on ESPN and Fox Sports, the radio shows that never talk about baseball. It's all NFL and NBA. And they're talking about a game they never would have talked about. Oh, no. Otherwise, And they're talking yeah. about a sport that realistically they wouldn't be talking about. Yeah, baseball is not the most entertaining thing to talk about on a talk show. And I think that with that fight, it was like, wow, that's the most full punch a lot of people in their 40s and 50s had ever seen landed on a baseball field. It was amazing. So, one, one of the best punches I've yes. ever seen. Yeah. Like, yes. It was brilliant. So, and the fact that he stood there and took it. Well, I mean, what was he going to do? Like run away? I mean, no, no, Batista's I mean, the I mean, kind I mean, of guy who's I mean, not I mean, didn't get knocked down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's got a good chin, Batista. But yeah. I think that I was cheering for that. And I, you never want to see anybody get hurt. But that is what we need some intrigue, you know? Not three hour and 30 minute 2 1 games. Those, those get a little old after a but while. But that's what makes hockey so exciting, too, right? Like the sort of unpredictability. The game itself is great, but I love when, you know, your team's down and you're yes. like, screw it. Let's, like, I'm going to fight you. Yeah. Except for Sidney Crosby. He runs and hides. He's his little baby. I, I, I lo- <laughs> and he's about to win a Stanley Cup. I, um, I love everything about hockey. Yeah. And it's another sport that I wish was more mainstream popular. Yeah. Like, I, it makes me sad that it's San Jose, Pittsburgh, and then I know so many of my friends and people in the business just don't care. Well, I mean, yes, for sure. But also, uh, you had an interesting experience with the Pens when you went to that Rangers mm. game on April 21st, and they crushed the Rangers. Oh, God. Uh, I have nothing. Yeah, uh, we're bringing up a, a very painful memory yeah. for Doug right now. We're talking about escapes, and that yeah. must have been when escapes go horribly that wrong. Was really, that was really bad. Because, and I'm not just saying that as a Ranger fan, I mean, um, I went with Steve Korn, who's one of the PAs at SNY and his Mm -hmm. friend, and we stub-hubbed, and we, it was not cheap. You guys didn't listen to me also. Yeah, that's true. I forgot that you had given us advice. I gave you advice. advice? Well, so. Don't go. (laughs) Well, aside from that, but I've been to enough Rangers playoff games that I know how to get it's luck based but how to get slightly cheaper tickets if you just wait like right. if you're okay with missing the game and then going to watch it at a bar and still enjoy that environment but knowing that if you're nearby and you wait to get tickets to just about 20 minutes before the game starts no that's yeah. too risky here's no, the problem it's not no. it's worked so many it's i i agree with you that it's so risky if it hasn't worked for me at least five times in the last three years let me tell you something Four I think playoff I, games I think, only kyle i think i told you this story but a few months ago we went to a ranger game and i can walk to the garden which makes it very very convenient for right. my for my apartment so um but i went with steve 
and his friend Ryan, and they both were like, you know what? We don't need to print tickets. We could just uh, scan our phones. It works that way on StubHub. Not at the garden. You get to the garden, and they say, no, you know, we can't scan the phone. You need to oh, go print it. Oh, I forgot it. Not that. at the garden. That's and they right. say, and you go to the hotel, hotel across, Pennsylvania. The, yeah, across the street. <laughs> and I swear to you, if I was still in news, I would do a story on the Hotel Pennsylvania at Puck Drop because it's a fascinating group of people. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's all people that at the last minute got tickets and are hectic as hell yeah. trying to Pr- See, trying to print their I've tickets. Never, I've, I've never, never even heard like, about that. There's three I've never computers. seen a group of tech-savvy people, because they're all using their phones, presumably, yes. to, to yes. get tickets originally it's all into young the garden. People. All young people, tech-savvy, have no idea what they're doing in this media <laughs> no. room. There's like no three computers, idea. like one works, the printers are like very odd, and there's just tickets printing out of the printers. People are like, oh, who's Joe Andrewsy? And someone's <laughs> like, uh, that's me. And then people get confused because your StubHub Joanne tickets... Joanne has a very deep voice. Yeah. And sometimes there's, there's tickets that have different people people's names on them because it's oh man it oh, it's is a disaster so interesting See, that is so funny but anyway but the, forgot about yes that. right the, the, well here here's my plan which i've done which we can share with you and the other listeners there's a stub hub office on 42nd or 40th it's right it's right near there you go in there there's computers set up and there's people to help you if you are not tech savvy you just you get in there maybe a half hour beforehand if you don't live right next to the garden and own a printer because i live on 85th street and don't own a printer so i have to go to a printer right. You get there about 45 minutes before the game. You just keep hitting refresh, looking for the tickets in the area that you want. You go, okay, wait a little while. Like, if the price hits what you're willing to pay, just buy them. But if you want to save a bit of money, you know, you just keep hitting refresh, hitting refresh. People panic, especially 30 minutes before the the first wave of panic hits. Then 15 minutes before puck drop, it's total anarchy because tickets just drop, even for playoffs, which I've done quite a few times and Mm. have had good experiences and but, this is just at the Garden for the Rangers? Yeah, this is... Uh, I've, I've only done it for the Rangers. No, I've only done it for the Rangers, mm-hmm. so that's all I can speak on. I don't yeah. know. I think the Knicks are, like, always sold out regardless, but you could probably... Oh, yeah, always the Knicks, sold I, I've actually gotten some some good deals on, but he, keep in mind that that Pittsburgh game that you just mentioned was the worst sporting event experience I've ever had. Uh, I, don't, I, <laughs> it I was turned over the game when off. it started. Yeah, I turned the game off after we the first period. We were miserable. Did you stay the whole time? Yes. I think good we left. You. I think we left maybe... With a few minutes left, but the game was one of those, the game ended while we were walking down right, situations. Right, yeah. And I was at game seven against the Lightning the year before. I almost bought tickets to that game. So the combination of the amount of money, <laughs> I'll never get that money back. Yeah. I ever. almost bought tickets to that game. that time, because they were both just terrible performances by the Rangers. I was so miserable. That, that game seven, we watched in a bar with hundreds of Rangers fans and just the collective like almost just a bunch of grown men that were going to start weeping together because of the, how bad that game was. The loudest the stadium got for both was the national anthem. That should tell you anything you need to know. That is so pathetic. I was so bad. That's the anthem, so bad. we were pumped for both anthems. <laughs> really pumped. And then yeah. that's it. It's just a downward spot. <gasps> Did I got, you I got, sing Oh Canada? They don't sing Oh Canada unless there's a Canadian yeah, team in an American on, arena. No, they're Canadian players though. No, but they're not going to sing it unless it's a Canadian team. It was the oh, Penguins versus dumb. the Rangers. Well they, well, they don't sing, you know, the Swedish national anthem, and Henrik Lundqvist is the starting goaltender for the Rangers. Yeah, like, but they don't have Swedish NHL teams. But the thing is, you can't... The Henrik Lundqvist point is a good one, because you, if you start playing the Canadian national anthem, you're going to start hearing from other countries. Right. Like, there's... Then we only have four but they don't have NHL the teams in their country. That's true, but the Canadian teams are—they've been like Americanized. They're a part of the National Hockey League, not the USA. Plus and Canada not one hockey Canadian league. team made the playoffs this year, so they're in kind of a. Yeah, I did. I did read that. I don't know too much about hockey, obviously. So, what two anthems did they do? They just do one. Anthem. They just do one. They I'm saying did. the anthem in Game Seven against the Lightning and this game against the Penguins was oh, the loudest oh, oh, oh. that both. The, both I thought you meant for that got. game, the Pens game. Uh, no, okay, no. okay, got it. All right. What, so, besides the NASCAR event, what was the best sporting event that you've been to in, in recent memories? Maybe that you went with just, like, friends or... I went to Don Zimmer getting, getting thrown to the ground by Pedro at Fenway Park with oh, my dad. Oh, awesome. And that game, that was Pedro Clemens, I believe, and it was the craziest sporting event I've ever been to. I mean, watching that in person was... There was a bullpen fight, Kareem Garcia screaming at Pedro. Pedro's like, who are you? <laughs> That like Posada pointing to his head, and uh, that was back when like I I I watched those games back. That was back when baseball was amazing. And you look in the crowd, and it's all people in t-shirts. There's no one coming from work in the suit. <laughs> Everybody is in their seat at at Yankee Stadium at Fenway. It didn't matter anywhere. Everyone's in their seat. 
And now when you watch baseball, not only are there a lot of more empty seats than there used to be, but also people are looking down because they're on their devices. Home runs, the head movement, people look down and then look up to see, oh, where's that? What happened? Yeah. It used to just be 100% focus on 100% of the pitches. And it's just not that way anymore. But that was an incredible, incredible game. I'm trying to think what else. I was at the Derek Jeter walk off his last his last ever game. Uh, I was working for it, but it was just an incredible experience. Um, his last ever game at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, where he had the walk-off hit. Yeah, because I was at his last at-bat at Fenway. Yeah, I was there too. Were you really? hmm Wasn't it amazing to hear all of Fenway, and listen, I know it wasn't all Red Sox fans because there was a decent amount of Yankees fans there too. Wasn't it amazing though to hear Fenway chanting Jeter for like the half yes. hour leading up to the game? Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, part of me thinks that if he had retired 10 years ago, he would have gotten booed and that would have been how the game used to be because now everyone loves each other in baseball. Another issue that I have and another reason why I loved Batista and Odor. Um, But I did, it gave me chills. It was incredibly cool. But now everyone loves each other in every sport. Yes. LeBron's friends with everyone. Kevin Durant, they're all, they're buddies. They hang out on, you know, their off time. Yeah. I guess except for hockey. That's because you're allowed to throw punches. Like, you're allowed to fight the people you don't like. And they're still not friends? They, uh, here's the thing. They might be a little bit, I but think they're kind of friends. There's yeah. a mutual respect. Even if guys are jawing at each other for an entire seven-game series, you notice that in the handshake line after, they're like, hey, played a heck of a series there, bro. And they're like, <laughs> you two have nothing but respect for you. They're so polite. <laughs> the the handshakes, and, and be like, yeah, he's a grinder. He's a, he's a good player, and... Uh, and he played a heck of a series, so I wanted to say that to him. Like, they're so polite. Oh my gosh, you've been like, listening to so many so NHL many post-game interviews. Yeah. It's always the same cadence with hockey players. Yeah. And and a lot of the same cliches, but they're they're the best interviews of all athletes, I think. Who's been your favorite interview so far of your career? Hmm. Um. Maybe one interview or a specific guy that you like to, go, you know, go back to the well. He's just a guy that you like to interview. I don't know. Since I started at SNY, I've really enjoyed talking to David Wright because mm-hmm. I think he's just so smart about the game. Um, and he, he genuinely, when you ask him a question, he genuinely thinks about it. Sometimes he gives it a two-second pause. He doesn't go into the same kind of robotic answer. He really thinks about it. And he's old school in a lot of ways. And he's a veteran player. And I just I, I interviewed him for the first time this spring. I really enjoyed it. I thought it, it was a well-thought-out interview on his part Mm -hmm. and um i hope he gets back as soon as possible i wish him nothing but the best yeah i think we all do and he he really has a presence in that clubhouse it's amazing yeah you were a pitcher growing up when you played baseball so do you have like a special connection with pitchers because you understand the game in that way so much better than than any other position i think so i mean i don't know if i would call it a special connection i would say that i genuinely enjoy interviewing them because i understand what they go through to a certain extent. I mean, I was just a high school pitcher. It's not like I ever played college or semi-pro ball or anything like that, but I really, I did not throw hard. So I was an art of pitching guy, even in high school. I was like a sinker baller. I threw a two seam and that was kind of how I got outs. I had to really study. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it's it's a fascinating thing for me to watch someone like Noah Syndergaard who throws 100 in a slider 93 and the amount of gifted talent that that guy has is unbelievable. And then watch Bartolo Colon on a totally different scale, throw an 88. And somehow, after years and so much film, they have so much film on Bartolo Colon. <laughs> and still, the best hitters in baseball get up there. And, and by throwing one pitch, he confuses them enough to get them out. Yeah. Did you ever think growing up that you were going to play professional sports, particularly baseball? That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to be a major league pitcher. I mean, who wouldn't? What a job. Yeah. Um, it's obviously you've seen how tough it can be. Matt Harvey struggles this year and what he's had to deal with. Um, that's the worst it gets, but in so many ways, I think ma- being a pitcher in major league baseball is as good as it gets. Huh? That's interesting for a while there. That's what I wanted to do. And when did that, when did it come to the realization of, Oh, this is really difficult to do. I won't be able to do it when no colleges were interested in me. And I don't think I could really touch 80 miles an hour. So that's when it was like, I either become a lefty and start throwing lefty a hundred times a day. And which I, I'm just joking. I never, (laughs) never considered that because if you're a lefty and you throw 80, you have a shot Uh uh, at least at college. But yeah, I, I just wasn't good enough. And at a certain point I realized that and I started to 
to f- get into broadcasting, started doing radio shows. I knew that there was, it was like an acel- accelerated version of what a pro goes through where you're like, well, the career's coming to an end. I should get into broadcasting. I did that when I was 16. <laughs> yeah. You did it super fast. Yeah. When you started getting into broadcasting, what part did you fall in love with? What part were you like, oh, this is for me? Uh, I think going to live events, getting getting paid to go to a sporting event was jaw-dropping at first. Yeah. I think anybody in the business can realize that. Yeah. Um, but like I said, when I was working at Yes, which I was at for a year and a half after college, I did articles, I did podcasts, I did video, both with the camera and in front of the camera. And... Um, I produced shows. I did a little bit of everything. And I think I learned that what I really liked was to write my own stuff and go in front of the camera. Granted, it was all for the web. Mm-hmm. But I learned quickly that writing my own little show it was a mini web show. It was probably 200 words of a script. But that's quickly what I realized I liked to do was tell a story and, and tell it on camera. Well, and that's what I tell a lot of people that are trying to get into the business now is do as much as you can. You can't imagine how many women come up to me and say, I want to be on camera. And I don't really know what to do with that. All right. I do is tell them you need to learn all of the things that go into being on TV first. The, the process, learn how to edit, learn how to log tape, learn how to do everything that leads up to it. And then you can appreciate being on, you know, being on camera. First of all, you work better with, I think, the people that help you yes. be better at your That's job. That's a huge part of it. Yeah. yeah, because you've experienced it yourself. And also, I think knowing all the ins and outs just make you better at what you do. Yeah, I I totally agree with everything you just said. I think a huge part of being a young broadcaster is being a one man band. Yeah, you know, um, I actually when I worked at Yes, they allowed me to have a green screen in my studio apartment here in New York. Oh my so, gosh, you're like Katie Nolan, just working so, out of. <laughs> yeah, well, I set up. This isn't what eventually got me discovered or anything but it couldn't have hurt i set up a green screen i had a light and a camera an old camera that yes gave me and i had my computer and i would shoot so like after the home run derby or after the all-star game or after a big event i would say like what's up everybody like this is for yes so Uh this is on their youtube channel i would say uh, give a few opinions about what we saw Uh i would edit it i would add music i'd add a little background to the green screen i'd pop it on youtube and hopefully you hit this like I picture the in Finding Nemo when you float with the turtles and you're just in that stream and you just go, f- that's how YouTube works. <laughs> if somehow you get it discovered, then you can move a million miles an hour. Again, like Katie Nolan. Um, yeah, exactly. So your video hits and then suddenly you have 100,000 views. And so that's that's how it worked. So yeah, I was doing basically anything I could to get on camera, but I was also doing all the stuff. You know, I was shooting it myself. I was lighting it myself. I was editing everything. So and that's that's perfect advice for anybody. Just get each step down because then, you, like you said, you're going to respect and work with the people who do those jobs once you are on camera more than, than you would elsewhere. And yeah. also going out with cameramen who are just going to do a shoot. You go to the event and you shoot a stand-up at the end. And then you have 10 stand-ups and you put it together on a reel. And so when someone asks you for a reel, you have one. Right. And that's really big, too, because people are constantly in this business asking for a reel, especially if you want to be on air, right? That's the first thing they ask. Yes, and, and just being wanting to be on air isn't really a legitimate thing. You have to say, I want to be on air in sports, or I, have, I want to be on air in news. You have to have a concentration because otherwise, you, you, you even it's like a dog chasing its tail. Even if you got an on-camera job, you need to be an expert in whatever it is. So that's a key, too. You know, f- focus your craft on one one particular thing. So your dad spent his lifetime in news. Did you ever think about going into news as a full-time situation? When did you decide sports is, is That's 100% the thing. for me? I, I haven't. I haven't oh, thought about that. Oh, interesting. Honestly. Um, because the thing is that sports is what I do naturally mm-hmm. when I get home. It requires the least amount of work for me because it never feels like work. And I mean that honestly. If you're out there and you're just a sports fan and you have another job, you're a sports fan. So when you get home, you watch sports. It's the same way for me. I just go to my job and and use that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy for me. It feels like if I were to ever do anything else, it would be harder. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking the possibility away of me going into another line of work. I won't, ne- I, I don't think I'll ever do news only, but I think that it is so important to do something that comes naturally to you. It's easier. And at the end of the day, you, you worry less. Yeah, you know? absolutely. When you were at Yes Network, did you have any? Do you have any fun Ryan Rucco or Michael K stories? 
I'm trying to think of, they are both incredibly nice people and yeah. both have helped me so much. I know Ryan was on the podcast. He, I worked with Ryan Moore actually at ESPN radio. I interned at ESPN New York okay. um, when I was a sophomore in college and I worked a lot for the 5am shift with him and Robin. Um, so I'd get there at like four uh-huh. and I'd like, you know, get them breakfast, do whatever they needed to do. Uh, Ryan could not have been nicer. Was he doing um, his throat exercises before he went I on I don't there? really remember his throat exercises. Really? That's what's they interesting. So I was listening good. to the podcast. Oh, so funny. I, I don't remember that. Um, Michael K maybe has done uh, more for my career than anybody just because he got me an interview, at, yes, from my, my ESPN radio uh, <laughs> gig. I guess I had made an impression on him as an intern and he just got me in the room. That's all he did. But I used the interview at yes, made a good impression somehow and the producer i interviewed with his words were we got to find a place for you that was it there wasn't a place so they gave me a freelance pa job and then my first week at yes a web producer quit to go elsewhere and suddenly there was a whole role for me to fill even with you know my freelance pa job and um that's how it all worked so just getting the foot in the door at yes is what's kind of led to everything so i have a lot of people to thank for that michael really helped he got me the interview and then you come to SNY, and your experience coming to SNY was a little different than my experience of you coming to <laughs> SNY, because, oh because when you first came, uh, they came to me and they said, hey, we hired Doug Williams. And as a Redskins fan, I got really excited because I thought Super Bowl winning quarterback Doug Williams was going to work at SNY. What did you, did you think he was going to host? Or did you think he was going to be a football analyst? I thought he was going to be a football analyst. So they didn't it's funny tell picturing me exactly. Him as an anchor and reporter, you know, like during my job. <laughs> they didn't exactly tell me what they had hired you for. Specifically, I didn't really ask. I just heard Doug Williams, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" So I was a tremendous disappointment to you. Is what you're saying? <laughs> when I walked in the door and I was like, "Hey, I'm Doug Williams," you're like, "No, you're not." <laughs> well, no, that that's not actually how it happened. You were downstairs, and they said to me. Doug Williams is downstairs. And I think for some reason that they thought that I was like a man fan of yours from you working at Yes or something because I got really excited. They were like, oh, he's downstairs. You know, I, they told me that you were really excited to meet him. I was like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So I get down there and I'm like, Doug Williams is, you know, he's in the newsroom. He's down at the end of the, the row. And I look down at the end of the row and instead of a <laughs> Super Bowl winning quarterback <laughs> for the Redskins... <laughs> I see you. <laughs> I am not that. I'm a lot of things. And, I am not. I'm and not I was like, oh, who's this, you know, this good looking young white That's guy. Nice. <laughs> and <laughs> they were like, That's Doug Williams. And I was like, No, it's oh, not. That's not Doug that, Williams. I was like, I got this totally wrong, didn't I? <laughs> you just poke me on the shoulder. Are you Doug Williams? <laughs> and they were like, Oh yeah, you thought it was somebody else. And I was like, No, I thought it was Doug Williams, but yeah. Um, but anyway, I was very happy to... Uh, Terribly sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> I was very happy to learn that you were a, an awesome uh, co-worker uh, once I got to know you. Well, but thank you. Maybe one day Doug Williams will come to work at SNY and that would be amazing. That would be amazing. I don't know. It would be tough for him. I think he's Redskins-centric, considering yeah. that's who he played for. But maybe he's just a good football analyst. I don't know. Yeah, I get confused know. for him on Twitter a lot. Do you really? Yeah. Not... Same reason to you. They don't do their research enough because I'm very clearly not the Super Bowl winning quarterback. But I do get tweets like just describing why he should be have a greater legacy and stuff like that. And I'm like, thank you, but I have nothing to do with this. You're like, my legacy will get there. Young guns, don't you worry. First African-American quarterback to win a Super Bowl. That's right. That's, I, know. I mean, that's, and that, that's, and that's a pretty that's great I legacy. I meeting. <laughs> nope. No. Okay, so when you get to SNY, what is your experience? Because it's definitely different than when... Mine. Um, I was I was nervous for for a long time at SNY because I when I got there I'd never done live TV mm-hmm. so that you can imagine that that's very tough um, and you know I think slowly I started things started to slow down a little bit and that's the key thing it sounds like a sports cliche but things do slow down for you the mm-hmm. game slows down so you know I was doing sports nights only for probably a month then you do your first daily news live. Then you start to get your feet wet in Mets and slowly you start to get more comfortable in different roles. And that's the thing. I've destroyed my comfort zone like 30 times since I got to SNY. Wow. And that's, that sucks at first because you're comfortable. You feel like you're good at what you're doing. And then, you know, Doug, do you want to start doing Mets pre and post? And I'm like, cause it sounds so hard and intimidating, but you have to say yes. Yeah. And the thing is that about SNY that somehow 
Kirk Gowdy, Brad Como, the people who have been making the decisions for me, my bosses, have mm-hmm. known that I was ready for stuff before I even knew. So I was nervous to do Mets pre and post, and then I do it, and it, it goes okay. Mm-hmm. And I realize I was ready for this. I fill in for Steve Gelbs. It goes okay. I realize I think I'm ready for this. And that's what's been so cool. And in the moment, your comfort zone, the walls around you getting destroyed stinks, but that's what you need to grow. So what is that moment like for you getting your comfort zone destroyed? Because like you said, it's nervous going in and then you realize afterwards it was okay. But actually in the moment when you're sitting there getting ready, the lights are about to come on. You got the producer in your ear telling you what's going on. How do you stay focused in doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing? I find it interesting that this is just something about me that I've found out, that I I get more nervous in the days and weeks before something than I do in that moment, which is a good thing because my hands would be shaking or stuff like that. Um, I think a lot about things, you know, two weeks in advance of the first time I did Mets, I was probably thinking about the first time I'll do Mets. And I was thinking about the show and what it'll be like and how many people are watching compared to what I normally do. And um same thing with, you know, reporting in the field. It, that requires a lot of different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the moment, I can block everything out. You, you don't think about anything else. You think about doing your job the right way. And I found luckily that I'm not hugely nervous in that moment. Mm-hmm. I just have to try and be as confident as possible. Do you yeah. remember your first sports night? Uh, well, Kyle, yeah. well. Would you care to? Because you, you, sure. you were good. You were no, great. No, I can tell you. You were great. Um, I worked on that show. Prompter went out, my first ever live TV broadcast. Midnight um, in November of, I guess, is that 2014 now? Yeah. I've been, yeah. yeah. So um, in the middle of an on-camera, I'm standing. So I don't have scripts in front of me. Nope. Um, it was an Eric Decker story um, about how, I think there was a story way back when when his wife was concerned about him because he was so bummed that the team wasn't performing well. Uh-huh. He was bringing it home with him. Right. And she came out and was like, he's so bummed. And that was the story. Uh-huh. And uh, about 10 seconds to air, yep. the prompter goes dark. And Sam oh Pepper was producing. He's terrific. And I said, Sam, I, prompter's dark. And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, Sam, I really needed you to hear me the first time I said that. Prompter is dark. And I came on camera. First five or so words I had down. And then slowly I started to lose it. Totally forget what I was doing. Keep my first time I've ever been on live TV. <laughs> and then Sam just gets in my ear and goes, toss to Chris Carlin. Because it was something Chris had done. And I said, here's Chris Carlin with more. There was a, you had like a quote in that on camera too, which you like we're gonna start to say and then it yeah. was just it was uh it was everything that could have gone wrong yeah. went wrong but you know what honestly i'm so happy it happened because it's happened a few times since and i've been able to totally handle it the first day the worst thing that can happen happened and ever since i haven't been scared of it happening which wow. is a blessing in disguise he, he recovered i remember everyone just being like oh we're gonna you know it's the first show and people sometimes are just like oh first show we're gonna do tons of fixes and that was the only thing, and it was totally not your fault. And we were all just like, you know, everyone that was, was pretty good. There, and, were, there, yeah. were, there were two emotions. The people around me felt really bad. Yeah. And I was devastated. Those were the two. There was the combination. I was so angry at myself for not being more prepared. I felt like, what am I, just a guy reading a screen? I couldn't, and I really, people were like, that was your first time, Doug, so you, you can go a little easier on yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no so one expects you to have the show memorized. Yeah, that was, the kind of, that was the kind of experience where it was really nice to have parents to talk to after, because <laughs> right. they, they talked me off the ledge. And what do they say, like, when they're coaching you? That's what they said, you know, it was your first time, and honestly, it always, I can't remember if it was my dad or my mom that told me this, but it's, all, it's never as good or as bad as you think. That is so true. After you get off a show, and you think it's fantastic, you're going to be like, that wasn't as good as I thought. After you do a show and you think it was awful, it's never as bad as you thought. That's something that I've learned. And I think with the prompter incident, it was a little bit like that. I think one interesting thing that you do on the desk is the lean. Oh, yeah. The like lean. your dad. The Doug mm-hmm. Williams lean. Yeah. Yeah. I like that people at SNY think it's my thing. In reality, I've probably gotten it through years of watching my dad. But it, it's it's a good way to position yourself because you don't look awkward. You just look comfortable. Yeah. I'm doing it here in studio. You can't see it, but I'm doing it right Yes, now. and he looks very comfortable. <laughs> well, thank you. Do you do an impression of your dad? No. Ever. I'm sorry. I, th- I would probably make very good radio, but I, 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 I don't. I'm really just trying to make up for the fact that we didn't ask Jim Brewer last week to do any impressions, and I'm yeah, kicking myself for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so a bad job. That's a bad job by the producer, I'd say. <laughs> what if I just had a killer Jim Brewer impression? That oh, would, that would be amazing. That would really help you out. No, I don't have it. Where do you want to go from here in your career? Where's your, your next step? Honestly, I, I have a long time... Um, still remaining here at SNY just contractually. And I, I, 
I'm not that worried about it. Um, I'm so lucky. And the thing is, too, that the producers at SNY and the shows that I've been able to do at SNY have me so captivated that I'm not thinking a lot about the future. Um, I don't know. I don't have a thing. As I said earlier, I don't have a show. I don't have a, a, a job that I want. Mm-hmm. I don't, there's not one thing. I, I love hosting in studio. I love being able to try my best to make other people look smart, pose them with good questions and, and, and gather together a group of people and have an interesting conversation. That's really my thing. So um, I don't have a job that I want, but for right now, SNY has been great. And, and I mean, you did a lot of baseball night in New York this off season. That was just a joy to host. I mean, it was an awesome show. as good as it gets for me personally. And yeah, you did a really great job with it. And we'll have, well, thank you. So did you. And we're, you know, we're having it more in sports, sports night during the season, which has been really cool. Monday through Wednesday, I host Geico sports night and we do a baseball night in New York segment or two which has added a different dimension to sports night. And I, think, I love, I think it's so great. Yeah, and yeah. I think a lot of people have said nice things about it and said that, you know, it adds a little something. You're coming off the Mets game. People want to hear reaction and we've been able to provide that. So it's been fun. Um, and uh, yeah, SNY has been a joy. Do you like sports opinion, sports news, mixing both? Do you prefer one or the other? I, it's interesting. I have a love hate relationship with like the hot take generation because mm-hmm. I don't love where sports broadcasting is going. I don't love that that's what moves needles around the country is hot takes and people saying ridiculous things that trend on Twitter and that's what you have to do now. Um, that's the old soul in you. Yeah, and it's 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 part of me that just wants to have a good, intelligent conversation, but those, I guess, aren't getting the ratings these days. But I think Baseball Night in New York has been a perfect mixture. We We have the hot takes. We have people saying wild things sometimes, but we also have intelligent baseball conversation with people who really understand the game. And I think that's the mixture. And, you know, uh, I guess my, what I'm waiting for is a good talk show. I would love to host it myself, but a good talk show with a mixture of people, not necessarily just writers, not necessarily just opinion people. You can have people from different lines of work, a sports show that would have Matt Damon on to talk about baseball or football, how much he likes sports based. That's the root of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And go in a little bit of a different direction sometimes. And a lot of people have tried it. doesn't always work. Like this podcast. Like a podcast that talks about sports, <laughs> well, but I'm talking about Game television. Inter- inter- television <laughs> specifically. But yes, this yeah. is a, a great a great medium. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that and I think that's the way it is going, though, in one of the more positive directions. Yeah. So, yeah, the hot takes can get a little annoying. But I think because everything is going towards opinion, the shows that you're talking about will become way more popular. And unfortunately, the news you yeah. know shows might be going a little bit more by the wayside yeah and you know we'll see how that pans out but that kind of seems like the direction it's going in all right doug we end every podcast with an embarrassing story oh boy so you have to come up with something dig down deep in your childhood the your prompter career. thing would have been great well kyle ruined yeah, it so I mean, i'll tell something very recent okay just because it's fresh on my mind i'm sure there are many more funny stories that are going to after i leave here i'm going to kick myself and be like oh, I well that's fine it. we also don't want to embarrass you too much this is just for a lighthearted no, no, fun fine. conversation so i am not like a super cool guy like i i don't like go to hit places a lot like I, i'm i'm it's just not really my thing so i'm not a huge club goer uh-huh. and for some reason i uh just went to las vegas and i like how i started for some reason because there's never a hugely good reason for anyone to go well, especially somebody who's not into clubs and right. isn't cool. So I'm not, I don't enjoy, <laughs> no, cool. I don't enjoy strip clubs and I don't enjoy clubbing in okay. general, but I had so many people, like I just went on a little vacation, went to LA for a few days, saw some people, and then I wanted to do the drive. So I did the drive from, from LA to Vegas. Which is a first beautiful time. drive. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, so people had just said, try clubbing. It's great. You'll have a great time. Have you never done it before ever? I've clubbed in, in New York many times, but Vegas, oh, Vegas. is a, entirely different. I don't know anybody. I'm not going with a large group of friends. It was just me and my, and my friend, Steve. So we were like, all right, we're going we're gonna to get a table at this club. And it requires buying a bottle of liquor, which is an absurd amount for two guys to, on their own, buy. Uh-huh. It's meant to be shared with a large group. Right. And I think when you buy a table, you're supposed to bring a big group. So we show up, we got a table, and um, we ended up standing around with each other <laughs> for 
hours. <laughs> <laughs> We're in like I, the way I would picture it is like a a, a group of tables there's all different types of people and we're mingling with them the other people that have purchased tables Uh but we're just so we're such idiots and so inexperienced we have no idea what we're doing so (laughs) and i've i've been told that this was going to happen um this guy who worked at the club comes over with this group of three women and he just like drops them off Uh at our table and again not being cool it comes into play here. So I'm like, Hey everybody, what's going, what's going on? Welcome to our table. Um, you can uh, have anything you'd like. Um, it's all yours. We've just been here for a, a few hours, just talking, chatting it up, listening to music that is just outrageously loud. And then, um, so the girls were talking, et cetera. My friend and I, you know, we're single and we quickly learn all three of them are married and they didn't have a sip not a sip. They didn't even have any, like we had uh, seltzer and Red Bull and none of that. No water. Actually, we had one water that was taken, drank. And um, they were really cool. We talked to them for a while, mostly about Game of Thrones. And then they left. <laughs> so in the entire period of a night of Las Vegas bottle service at a club, I talked to four people. <laughs> Those three married women and my friend Steve. <laughs> That was my Las Vegas clubbing experience. And the thing is that Matt Dunn, Dave Mandel, if and when they hear this on the pod, they will come after me. That is so Because they good. were the ones that, you should do it. It'll be fun. And I'm, j- I'm just bad at it. I'm bad at Las Vegas. That's what I figured out. I like how, welcome to our table. You were like hosting like, a show. Guys, <laughs> I feel like that's how you got to introduce the podcast from now. And be like, welcome to our table. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we're at a table now. It's like, guys, welcome. Um, help yourself Headphones, to- Headphones, mics. Does everyone have everything they need? Help yourself to whatever you'd like. And then 10 minutes later, I'm talking about Hodor with, with this total stranger. It was, wow. it was uh, a very, very funny experience. But the problem is, in that moment, we left there being like, that was just a waste. But it ends up being a great experience in hindsight because it's hysterical. Absolutely. And you don't want to have the prototypical, I mean, maybe you do, but everyone has the same very Vegas story, same Vegas experience. Mm-hmm. It's kind of good to have something different and awkward and weird happen every yeah, once in a while. It's just... To, and non, be, to non-club guys, go to a club and see what happens. Right. That's exactly why we did it, too. And that'll just be a to story between you guys happen. forever. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool. Doug, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You so were awesome. So happy to be on it. We love working with you at SNY. We've really had an Likewise. amazing experience. Um, and we're excited to see you grow from where you have come when you first got there to where you are going and beyond. Well, thank you. So, it's, it's been a ton of fun here and at SNY in my time. So thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Sure. Kyle, thank you. Joey, thank you. And let's go get a snack.